The Guardian. Order. Questions to the Prime Minister. Mr Andrew Bingham. Question number one, please, Mr Speaker. Thank you, Mr Speaker. I'm sure the whole House will wish to join me in paying tribute to Private Matthew Thornton from 4th Battalion, the Yorkshire Regiment, Lance Corporal Peter Eustace from 2nd Battalion, the Rifles, Lieutenant David Boyce and Lance Corporal Richard Scanlon, both from the Queen's Dragoon Guards, and Private Thomas Lake from 1st Battalion, the Prince of Wales Royal Regiment. They were all courageous soldiers held in the highest regard by their comrades. We owe them a great debt of gratitude for their service and for their sacrifice, and we send our condolences to their families and their friends. Mr Speaker, I'm sure the whole House will also want to join me in paying tribute to Alan Keane, who sadly died after a courageous battle with cancer. He was a popular constituency MP, serving Feltham and Heston for nearly 20 years. Before entering politics, Alan was a scout for Middlesbrough Football Club and continued to be a great advocate for sport, not least through his chairmanship of the all-party parliamentary football group, which grew to be one of the largest in the House under his stewardship. We send our deepest sympathies to his wife, Anne, who is a friend to many here, and to his family and to all his constituents. He will be missed by members on all sides of this House. This morning I had meetings with ministerial colleagues and others, and in addition to my duties in this House, I shall have further such meetings later today. Mr Andrew Bingham. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Can I join the Prime Minister in those words and a tribute to our brave soldiers who this week have given their lives in service to our country. All our thoughts should go out to them and their families at at this very difficult time, and similarly to the tribute paid to our honourable member from uh, Feltman Heston. Mr Speaker, the mass mass strikes proposed by the unions this time next week will cause will cause great upheaval for many of my constituents in the High Peak. Does the Prime Minister, like me, think that it is wholly irresponsible of the unions to bring their members out on strike based on such a small number of votes and also when the negotiations on pensions are still going on? I think my honourable friend makes a very important point. It really is irresponsible when negotiations are ongoing to cause strikes that will actually lead to the closure of most of the classrooms in our country. It's the height of irresponsibility. And I have to say, what is on offer is an extremely reasonable deal. Low and middle income earners getting a larger pension at retirement than now, all existing accrued rights being fully protected, any worker within 10 years of retirement seeing no change in either the age they can retire or the amount they can receive. And I think as a, also it is a tragedy that it's not just the union leaders that don't understand this, but the party opposite refuses to condemn these strikes. Mr Speaker, may I start by joining the Prime Minister in paying tribute to Private Matthew Thornton from 4th Battalion, the Yorkshire Regiment, Lance Corporal Peter Eustace from 2nd Battalion, the Rifles, Lieutenant David Boyce and Lance Corporal Richard Scanlon, both of 1st, the Queen Dragoon Guards, and Private Thomas Lake from 1st Battalion, the Princess of Wales's Royal Regiment. All of these men died serving our country with the utmost bravery and courage, and my deepest condolences and those of the whole House are with their family and friends. I also want to pay tribute, as the Prime Minister rightly did, to Alan Keane, the former member for Feltham and Heston. He was, as the Prime Minister said, somebody who had friends across this House. He was somebody who believed in young people and opportunities for young people, and most of all in the power of sport to change people's lives. And as I heard at his funeral yesterday, 
He certainly had an unusual idea of his first date. He took his wife, Anne, to the Orient, which turned out not to be a Chinese restaurant, but Leighton Orient, uh, who were playing that day. He was, he, was a, he was a great and lovely man. He will be missed by all of us, but most of all by Anne and his family. Yeah. Mr Speaker, can the Prime Minister tell us what the increase has been in long-term youth unemployment since he scrapped the Future Jobs Fund in March? Well, youth unemployment is up since the last election. I accept that. And youth unemployment is unacceptably high in this country as it is unacceptably high right across Europe. The problem is that youth unemployment in this country has been rising since 2004. And under the last Labour government, it went up by 40%. Now, what we've got to do to help get young people back to work is improve our school system so they've got proper qualifications, improve our welfare system so it pays to work and improve our employment system so there are proper apprenticeships to help young people. We have 360,000 apprenticeships this year helping young people to get work. Ed Miliband. Mr Speaker, under 13 years of a Labour government, youth unemployment never reached one million. It's taken him 18 months to get to that tragic figure. And since, he, and, since he didn't, and since he didn't answer the question, since he didn't answer the question, the reality is that, he, that since he scrapped the Future Jobs Fund in March, long-term youth unemployment has risen by 77%. Now can he, now can he tell us what has happened to long-term youth unemployment since he introduced his work programme in June? Yeah. Well, first of all, let me just repeat, youth unemployment up 40% under a Labour government. And let me, just, let, me just, let me just remind him of actually something his brother said last week. He said very clearly, this government did not invent the problem of youth unemployment. I think we should have, we should have that sort of candour from this brother. Now, the, the Leader of the Opposition asked me very specifically about the Future Jobs Fund and the Work Programme. Let me give him the answer. The Work Programme is helping 50% more people than the Future Jobs Fund. It will help 120,000 young people this year, where the Future Jobs Fund only helped 80,000 people. The waiting time for the most needy young people will be half of the waiting time there was under the Future Jobs Fund. Under the work programme, those who are not in education, employment and training will get help. I would have thought members opposite will want to hear about what we're doing to help young people. They will get help within three months rather than six months. But the absolute key is that because we're paying by results, the work programme will actually help those who need the most help. Whereas the Future Jobs Fund put a lot of graduates into public sector jobs and was five times more expensive than the alternative. That's why we've scrapped it and replaced it with something better. Mr Speaker, classically, lots of bluster, but no answer to the question I asked. They'll be interested in the answer, Mr Speaker. They'll be interested in the answer the Prime Minister didn't give. Because in June 2011, 
when the work programme was introduced, there were 85,000 young people unemployed for more than six months. Now it is 133,000, a massive increase since he introduced, since he introduced the work programme. Now, if he is serious about tackling youth unemployment, he should get those on the highest incomes to help those with no incomes at all. Why doesn't he tax the bankers' bonuses and use the money and use the money to create 100,000 jobs for our young people? We have introduced the bank levy that's going to raise more every year than the bonus tax than his bonus tax would raise in one year. But, Mr Speaker, we just heard a new use for the bonus tax. There have been nine already. He's used his bonus tax. Let me... Let me, let me give him the list. He's used the bonus tax for higher tax credits, giving child benefit to those on the highest rates of tax, cutting the deficit, spending on public services, more money for the regional growth fund, that's when he's defending it rather than attacking it, turning empty shops into cultural community centres, and higher capital spending. This is the bank tax that likes to say yes. No wonder... No wonder the Shadow Chancellor stopped saluting and started crying. <laughs> Mr. Speaker, Mr. Speaker, the even for this Prime Minister to be playing politics with youth unemployment. I apologise for interrupting, right honourable gentlemen. Let me say it again. The Prime Minister will be heard and the Leader of the Opposition will be heard. And laughing about the denial of a hearing is not to the credit of any honourable or right honourable member. Mr Ed Miliband. Mr Speaker, the truth is he is the one cutting taxes for the banks year on year in the course of this parliament and that is the reality and he's creating a lost generation of young people and he knows it and it's his responsibility it's happening on his watch now mr speaker he said on monday he said on monday to the cbi it was harder than anyone envisaged to get the deficit down but mr speaker he was warned that his strategy of cutting too far and too fast wouldn't create jobs, he was warned it wouldn't create growth, and he was warned he would find it harder to get the deficit down. Isn't that exactly what has happened? Well, he accuses us of cutting taxes. Let me tell him what we are cutting. We are cutting interest rates, which is giving this economy a great, a, a best boost. We're cutting corporation tax. We've now got the lowest rates of corporation tax in the G7. We're cutting tax for the low paid because we've taken a million people out of income tax. We are freezing the council tax, cutting the petrol tax and scrapping Labour's jobs tax. That is what this government is doing. Now, of course, let me answer him directly on the issues of growth and debt, because this is absolutely key. All... He's at it again, I'm afraid. All... All... All over Europe, there is an interest rate storm. There is an interest rate storm with high interest rates in Spain, high interest rates in Italy, high interest rates even in some of the countries at the heart of the Eurozone. We must make sure we keep this country safe with low interest rates. And let me just remind him of this. 
If interest rates went up by 1% in this country, that would add £1,000 to the typical family mortgage. That is the risk that we'd have with Labour's plans for more spending, more borrowing and more debt. Mr Speaker, there he goes again. When it goes wrong, it's nothing to do with him. It is the Prime Minister's A, B, C. Anyone but Cameron to blame when things go wrong. Now, now what did the Chancellor say at the time of the budget last year? That his approach, and I quote, would deliver a steady and sustained economic recovery with, with low inflation and falling unemployment. Mr Speaker, three promises made, three promises broken. Their plan is failing, and that is the truth. Doesn't that show why at the autumn statement, the Prime Minister should change course? Let me just give him the latest growth figures in Europe, right? Britain grew. Britain grew at 0.5% in the last quarter. That is the same as the US and Germany. It's faster than France, faster than Spain, faster than the EU average, and faster than the Eurozone average. That is the fact. Now, of course, it is a difficult economic environment we're in, but is there a single other mainstream party anywhere in Europe who thinks the answer to the debt problem is more spending and more borrowing? If he's worried, if he's worried about the level of debt, why is he proposing to add another £100 billion to it? It is the height of irresponsibility and the reason why people will never trust Labour with the economy again. How out of touch does this Prime Minister sound? One million young people and their families worried about finding a job and all he offers is complacency and more of the same. And now we know it, Mr Speaker. However high youth unemployment goes, however bad it gets, it's a price worth paying to protect his failed plan. I tell him this, unless he changes course next week, unless he changes course next week, one million young people will become the symbol of his failed economic plan and an out-of-touch Prime Minister. The, the right hon. Gentleman asks for a change of course. Let me just say to him what it is that the leading economic organisations in our country and indeed across the world say about that issue. The IMF say this, is there a justification for a shift in the policy mix? We think the answer is no. Let's listen to the Governor of the Bank of England, Mervyn King. There has to be a plan A. He says he wouldn't listen to him. It was Labour who appointed him. There has to be a plan A. This country needs a fiscal consolidation starting from its largest peacetime budget ever. Who was it who gave us that peacetime budget? The Labour Party. Listen to the CBI. The CBI, the leading business organisation in this country. Priorities for the next 12 months. Stick closely to the existing credible plan. That is what the experts say. That is what business says. That is what the Bank of England says. Would you listen to them or would you listen to the people that got us into this mess in the first place? Returning to next week's public sector uh, strikes. Mr Speaker, they don't like it up them, do they? (laughs) Is the Prime Minister aware that of the three largest unions, 
The turnout in the strike ballot was 32%, 31% and 25% respectively. Will he agree that any striker has the right to strike if he so wishes, but he should not engage in mass action unless he has the support of the majority of his union's membership? I think my honourable friend makes a very important point. As I said, it is wrong that these strikes are going ahead when negotiations are underway. It is wrong to strike and close so many classrooms and so many essential services. But it is being done on the basis of these turnouts. Just one quarter of Unison members voted to strike. Just 23% of those balloted at Unite voted in favour. And well, I'm not surprised Labour members want to shout me down. We know why they won't condemn the strikes, because we've got the figures today for where they get their money from. In his first year as leader of the party, 86% of Labour's donations have come from the trade unions. 86%. That is, that's about, under, under the last Labour leader it was 56%. It's about the only thing he's improved since the time of Gordon Brown. Anne McKechin. Mr Speaker, I understand that the Prime Minister is having trouble connecting with women and is seeking advice. Uh, Given that female unemployment has increased this year by 20%, given that women have been the hardest hit by public sector cuts and the VAT rise, and given that they have benefited the least from its tax giveaways, would he not agree that it is time for a Plan B which reverses the VAT increase and ensures benefits increase in line with inflation? Well, I don't agree with the Honourable Lady. Of course, every family in Britain is facing a difficult time with rising inflation, tight household budgets, and the fact there has been a pay, pay sector, public sector pay freeze. But actually, if you look at what we are doing in terms of trying to help women, the million people we've lifted out of tax at the lowest end, many of those are women. If you look at what we're doing in terms of additional childcare, that is helping women. If you look at the extra hours we're giving for two, three, and four-year-olds, that is helping women. So I don't accept what he said what she says this is a difficult economic environment but for instance with the changes we're making to public sector pensions it means low paid people in the public sector will actually get a better pension including many women but because she like everyone else on the other side is in the pocket of the unions they can't see that or Simon say Simon Kirby Thank you, Mr Speaker. Given the Government's intention to freeze council tax, is the Prime Minister as astounded as I am that the Green-run Brighton Hove Council are planning to decline £3 million of council tax grant and are planning instead to raise council tax by 3.5%, so costing local taxpayers £4 million? I think this is a very important point. At a time of of difficult household budgets, it's this government that's actually cut the petrol tax, freezing the council tax, and made that available to councils up and down the country. So look, it's a decision for individual councils. If they want the money for the council tax freeze and to go ahead with the council tax freeze, the money is there. But if they reject it, as they plan to in Brighton, I think that's a huge mistake because they're going to be asking families in Brighton to pay more at a time when they should be on their side. Thank you very much, Mr Speaker. Earlier this year, the Prime Minister confirmed that he would meet with members of the cross-party inquiry into stalking, which I chair. It is indeed welcome news that the Home Office will now be consulting with a view to legislating. Would he confirm that the inquiry's evidence-based deliberations and conclusions will be fully taken into account in considering future legislation? 
I can certainly give the Right Honourable Gentleman that assurance. It does seem to me important that we take forward the work that the Home Office and the Justice Department have done in terms of looking at a proper separate offence for stalking and recognising there is a gap in the current law and we should uh, fill that because there are people who aren't getting the protection and the help from the police that they need. Edward Timpson. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Uh, there's genuine concern in crew in my constituency about overdevelopment in respect of housing. How can my right honourable friend uh, ensure that my constituents get a greater say in planning decisions for new housing estates required for our housing shortage? I think the great strength of the localism bill, which is now the localism act, is we're giving local people a much greater say. Now, I think in many parts of the country that will be welcomed because people can see the advantages of development going ahead and recognising that if they do build extra houses, they will keep the council tax. If they do attract extra businesses, they'll keep the business taxes. And that will help actually end the problem, which we've had for so long, of communities not seeing any advantage in development taking place. But it should be a matter for them to decide, as in the case of Crewe. Mr Malcolm Wicks. Would the Prime Minister agree that the history of Northern Rock represents a kind of modern-day morality tale or play? In that here we have a decent, mutual and responsible building society, which is then privatised, it then overextends, it then goes bust, it is then bailed out by the taxpayer, and now, sadly, instead of returning to mutuality, it is sold off dirt cheap to one of the brashest companies in England. I, I, I was with the right hon. gentleman for some of the way through his question, but actually if you look at the decision the government has taken, first of all we are selling a business that was costing the taxpayer money and getting actually well over £700 million for that business in the first instance. But the second thing we're doing, which I think is actually in the interests of every single person in this House and everyone in this country, is to get another functioning bank and building society on our high street lending money. How many times do all of us go to our constituency surgeries and hear people say that I can't get a mortgage or small business say I can't get a loan. We we need a good, new, healthy lending institution out there and I think honourable members should welcome that it's going to be based in the north-east of England as Northern Rock was. Thank you Mr Speaker. At a time when the government is taking steps to drive growth in the economy, could the Prime Minister update the House on what measures are being taken to attract high quality inward investment to enterprise zones such as Wharton and my constituency? I do think the enterprise zones are going to be a success because we're basing them, as in his constituency, in areas where there's already a successful cluster of businesses. So if you take, for instance, the ones at the Darsbury Science Park or at Harwell in Oxfordshire, or indeed the enterprise zone in Wolverhampton, where Jaguar Land Rover have said they're going to establish a new plant employing 1,000 people. So I think enterprise zones are being well applied, a good success story, and this government is right behind them. Chris Bryant. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. The personal damage caused by long-term unemployment can be phenomenal. On average, somebody who is unemployed for more than six months is six times more likely to have a, to contract a serious mental health problem. Doesn't the Prime Minister worry that we are going to have a generation of young people who will be suffering many of the problems of lack of self-esteem and lack of and never having a first job? Wouldn't it make more sense? to be guaranteeing every under 24-year-old a job after six months unemployed, paying them to work, not paying them benefits. 
I think the, the Honourable General makes a very important point, which is the scarring effect of long-term youth unemployment. And there are, there, are, there are two very important things that we're doing to try and help that. First of all, helping within three months through the work programme for, for, for those not in employment, education and training, rather than six months under the Future Job Fund. Secondly, one of the most successful schemes that there's been in recent years is giving people work experience placements. In many cases, and we'll be producing evidence for this soon, in many cases it's actually leading to direct employment opportunities for those young people. The Deputy Prime Minister will have more to say about this uh, later in this week, but we are doing everything we can to help those young people into work and to prevent the scarring effects that he talks about. Mrs Mensch. Can I associate myself with the Prime Minister's tribute to Alan Keane? He was our dear friend and colleague on the Select Committee, and everybody who worked with him will miss him greatly. Will the Prime Minister acknowledge that one of the most disruptive impacts of next week's strikes will be on mums and dads with children in school? Will my right honourable friend join me in encouraging employers to allow parents to bring their children to work when it is safe for them to do so? Well, I'm sure that uh, everyone in the House would agree with the tribute um, she paid to um, uh, her colleague from, from the Select Committee and the very good work that, that he did on that committee. I think she makes a good point about the strikes next week. I mean, frankly, these strikes are going to go ahead. Everyone should be very clear about where responsibility lies. It is with those union leaders and it is with, including the party opposite, who are actually taking their side and backing this strike. But I think she makes an important point, which is where it's safe to help people bring their children to work, then I think organisations should do so. Great Thank you, Mr Speaker. The Prime Minister will probably be aware that there are up to 20,000 individuals in the United Kingdom, across the whole of the United Kingdom, who have lost considerable sums of money, often their pension savings, through the collapse of the Archcrew Investment Fund. He will know that that was a fund that was advertised and marketed as being cautious that turned out to be anything but. Will the Prime Minister now heed the calls from all sides of the House for the Government to use the powers open to them to institute an immediate inquiry under the Section 14 of the Financial Services and Markets Act so this never happens again? Like the Honourable Gentleman, I've had contacts from my constituents who've lost money because of this fund, who are very concerned about what's happening. I follow the fact there has been a Westminster Hall debate on this issue, and the Minister set out uh, the position in terms of the responsibility of the Financial Services Authority, but I'll look very carefully at what he says and see if we can do more. Mr Alan Reid. I fully understand that savings have to be made in the defence budget, but I'm very concerned that the proposals for significant cuts in the Ministry of Defence police budget and the possible implications for the security at the nuclear bases of Faslane and Coolport in my constituency. Will the Prime Minister please look at these proposals very carefully? Uh, my old friend makes an important point. If you look at the defence budget overall, it is £35 billion and will continue at pretty much that cash figure throughout this Parliament. It will be still the fourth largest defence budget anywhere in the world. I can assure my honourable friend there are no current plans to reduce the number of Ministry of Defence police at either Faslane or Coalport naval bases. These are absolutely vital sites, as he rightly knows, but obviously we have to look at all of the costs in the Ministry of Defence and make sure that what we're getting is the outcomes in terms of the safety that we need. Dr Alan Whitehead, does the Prime Minister favour the establishment of local authorities that meet only to give out contracts to others and provide no direct services to the local population? Well, what I support is local authorities that provide good services and keep their council taxes down. And I think in his part of the world, he's had the advantage of a bit of change and some common sense conservatism. Mr Stuart Jackson. 
600 people are employed by Thomas Cook at their headquarters uh, in Peterborough and they're rightly concerned about media coverage after uh, over the last two days of the company's difficulties. Will my right honourable friend uh, join me in supporting this great British institution that has been providing travel to British people for 170 years and make the point too that the people can support the company uh, by booking their holidays through Thomas Cook, safe in the knowledge, safe in the knowledge under the Atoll scheme and they'll have an excellent holiday to boost. Uh, my honourable friend speaks up for uh, an iconic and important British business that has given people a lot of pleasure over the years. I've obviously asked the business department to give me a report on what is happening in terms of, of Thomas Cook because I think it is important to make sure that this, this business is in a good healthy state. Helen Jones. Recent research has shown that the NHS achieved the biggest drop in cancer deaths and the most efficient use of resources of 10 leading countries. So will the Prime Minister now accept that he did not inherit an NHS in crisis, but one which was rapidly improving, and stop using dodgy 10-year-old statistics to justify his wasteful and destructive NHS private I'm a huge supporter and fan of the NHS and there are, many, there are many things that are truly wonderful about our NHS and we should celebrate that. But I have to say, under the last government, the number of managers in the NHS doubled. The number of NHS managers was increasing six times faster than the number of nurses and NHS productivity was falling. Now, if you inherit a situation like that, it makes sense to make some changes. And that's why you can see, since we've come in, 14,000 fewer non-clinical staff, but we've actually got more doctors, more midwives, more operations taking place. And if she wants something to celebrate in the NHS... Thank you, Mr Speaker. If you want something to celebrate in the NHS, mixed-sex accommodation, those mixed-sex wards, are down 90% since this government came to office. Mr John Whittingdale. Friend aware of research by the Taxpayers Alliance, which shows that residents, residents of the Malden district are paying more in motoring taxes and receiving less indirect benefit than anyone else in the entire country. While my constituents appreciate that under the plans of the last Labour government they will be paying even more in motoring taxes, will he accept that for them and others in rural areas this is becoming an intolerable burden? Now, I do accept what my honourable friend says, and that is why in the budget we took the decision not only to cut, uh, not only to get rid of the tax increases on petrol that were coming down the track, but also to make a cut in petrol duty. So effectively, that was six pence off uh, a litre of, of diesel or petrol. And it seems to me it is essential that at a time of economic difficulty, we demonstrate that we're behind those people who want to work hard and do the right thing, freezing their council tax, scrapping Labour's jobs tax, and helping them with their motoring expenses. This government is absolutely committed to doing that. And it's all very well, members opposite shouting about the Taxpayers' Alliance. They do a good job to draw attention. And, and also, the difference is they, they don't actually pay us to put down amendments. Mr Speaker, I think the whole House will approve of the belated conversion of the Justice Secretary to the Office of Chief Coroner, but there are still many concerns in this 
House about war memorials. And the other week I brought a petition of 3,000 people signed in Blackpool to the Prime Minister on this matter. Will he now use his office and his weight to persuade the Justice Secretary and his ministers that they need to look urgently at new penalties and new protections, both for war memorials and those who uh, attack them? Now, I think the Honourable Gentleman speaks for the whole House and actually the whole country in saying what's been happening to our war memorials is completely unacceptable. I don't think there's a single answer. I suspect it may lie, as he says, in some new uh, punishments and rules, but it also lies in looking at the scrap metal uh, market and how that is currently regulated. I I hear very clearly what he says about the office of the Chief Coroner. I'm delighted that we've been able to put forward an amendment and to accept some of the points there. I think the one thing we should try and avoid and I think this is really important because all of us want to do the right thing for those soldiers and their families who've given so much to our country. I don't think having a right, an endless right of appeal after inquests would be a good idea. I think that would actually damage the interests of families. Extremely grateful but establishing. For the oh, uh, thank you very much, Mr. Stewart. Extremely grateful. Mr. Stuart Andrew. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, Over the last 30 years, thousands of vulnerable and disadvantaged children in the UK have been supported through projects that have been funded by children in need. Would my right honourable friend join me in congratulating them in raising over £600 million over the years and pay particular tribute to my constituents in Pudsey who came together as a town, raised thousands of pounds and welcomed Pudsey Bear home for the first time? I'm very glad my honourable friend managed to get in and I'm, I apologise, Mr Speaker, for almost squeezing him out. It would be a tragedy if we didn't have this opportunity to pay tribute to Pudsey and all that Pudsey's achieved over many, many years. Mr Jim Shannon. Thank you, Mr Speaker, for calling me. Uh, last week I visited Afghanistan through the Armed Forces Parliamentary Scheme and had the opportunity to meet the commanding officer in Helmand Province. He stated that there are two issues that he needs before any British withdrawal in 2014 political help and influence with neighbouring countries to Afghanistan to enable Afghanistan to develop, and secondly, sufficient training and adequate equipment for Afghan army. Can the Prime Minister assure this House today that these requests will be delivered prior to any 2014 withdrawal from Afghanistan? No, well, I think the Honourable Gentleman is right to speak up on this issue and to repeat what he heard in Afghanistan. He's absolutely right. We need to help the neighbouring countries. My national security adviser and other members of my team are in Pakistan, actually speaking with the Pakistani government even as we speak. And in terms of the equipment, assistance and training given to the Afghan National Army, we now publish a monthly report to this House so that everyone can see the progress we're making with equipping and training the Afghan National Police and the Afghan National Army. And in spite of all the difficulties in Afghanistan, that that is broadly on track. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.